We are in the third Sunday of Advent. We don't follow uh, the formal church calendar super closely at Faith Church, but we do stop and celebrate Advent each year. Advent simply means uh, coming or arrival. And so during this time, we uh, celebrate and talk about the arrival of God into the world. God taking on flesh and coming into the world in the form of Jesus. Uh, and uh, we talk about that, of course, throughout the year. We sing about it throughout the year and uh, talk about it in our kingdom communities. But uh, this season gives us time to focus uh, especially on the incarnation of Jesus coming into the world. On this third Sunday of Advent, we're actually going to look at a passage that we read last week in Lessons and Carols. It was the fifth lesson from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, grab that and turn with me to Matthew 2, 1 through 12. It will also be in your bulletin and on the screen behind me. And as you're you're turning, I want to just make a note for something for you to notice that I think... Um, kind of being in the South, we've kind of grown up around these passages for a long time, and I think it's something that's easy to miss. And so just note that when the people in this passage hear the news that a king is coming, this king of the Jews named Jesus is being born, notice that everyone in the passage is in agreement on one thing. Everyone agrees that this is something real. No one in this passage doubts what is being announced and said. No one looks at these announcements and says, I don't know about that. I don't think that's true. Everyone sees it as truth. And what's interesting is the difference comes when the way people respond to the truth. That's what's different in this passage Everyone agrees on the truth, but the response is what is different uh, among the people in this passage. I think you'll see what I mean as we read. So follow along with me as we look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll look and tag on verse 16 as well. This is God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. And from all you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them that that the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen went 
when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is God's word. Let me pray and give thanks um, for this passage and for what God is doing. Let's pray. Father, um, we do give you thanks for Christmas and for what you are doing in the world and what you have done in the world. And Christmas is so wonderful in so many ways. It's Um, The most wonderful time of year for many people. We gather, we celebrate, we sing, we eat good food. But for others, uh, Christmas is a very lonely time. It's a reminder of how alone we are. It's a reminder of loss. As we gather with families, we are reminded of the brokenness within our own families. Some of us, maybe even this morning find the story of Christmas, the fact that God would be born of a virgin and take on flesh, maybe we even find this story offensive and really hard to believe. And so we are in lots of different places this morning, and wherever we find ourselves, would you come through your spirit and minister, take your word and apply it to our lives and to our hearts very specifically. We really need you this morning. Come and be present in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. What is your version of the Christmas story? What's your version of the Christmas story? I love Christmas. I've always loved Christmas. This is hands down my favorite time of every year, and it's the most wonderful time of year for many, many people. But we have so sentimentalized this season, haven't we? We've so sentimentalized this season that the realism of Christmas, it's really easy for us to lose the realism of Christmas. It gets overrun with the carols and the gifts and the peaceful nativity scenes that seem to take center stage. But the real Christmas story, the story that we just read, is not nearly as cute as Christmas is often made out to be. Because this is a coronation story. And as Andrew Peterson says in Behold the Lamb, the night was not silent. And there was blood on the floor. There was blood on the ground. You see, we've cleaned up the Christmas story. And in the real Christmas story, it was not a calm night. And all was not bright. And the little baby Jesus was not sleeping in heavenly peace. Someone was trying to kill him. This morning, what I want us to look at in Matthew chapter 2 is I want us to see the real Christmas story this morning. 
And I want us to see that the real Christmas story involves three things. And this, we're going to see from this passage. It involves, number one, a clash of kingdoms. It involves, secondly, a warning for religious people like us. And thirdly, it involves grace for real sinners like us. So let's look at number one. The real Christmas story involves a clash of kingdoms. I think it's important as we look at this passage in Matthew chapter 2 to remember the context. And the context, obviously, is Matthew chapter 1. And remember, if you have your Bible, you can flip back. In Matthew chapter 1, we see the genealogy of Jesus and how Matthew is showing us. He's showing us other things, but mainly he's showing us that uh, Jesus is the true son of David, that Jesus is the king, that he is the king that these people have been, and that we have been waiting for for years and years and years. He's the king in the line of David. And then look at chapter 2, verse 1. Remember the context. And then Matthew says, Jesus was born in the days of Herod. He could have stopped there, but Herod the king. And if you keep reading and looking, and you probably heard as I was reading, you heard me say ruler and king shows up a lot in this passage. Why? Because one of the things that Matthew wants us to see is that Christmas is a clash of kingdoms. And what do we know about this king, this King Herod, that was king during the time in which Jesus was born? Well, he was known as Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was friends with the Romans. He was so highly regarded among the Roman Senate that they actually gave him the title king, king of the Jews, uh, when he was only 33 years of age. And from the very beginning of his rule, he wanted to protect his power. So much so that did you know his first order of business was to eliminate all the other rivals. And so he had 45 leading nobles, his rivals, executed. His brother-in-law, he had drowned in a swimming pool at the Jericho Palace. He also had his mother-in-law killed. He had 10 wives, and his favorite wife, once he got word that she had been unfaithful to him, he also had her executed. And if that weren't enough, he had two of his own sons also killed. Caesar Augustus says that it would be better to be a pig in Herod's family than to be one of his own sons. And you might think, well, surely he was ineffective then as a ruler. Well, you would be wrong. He was not ineffective as a ruler. In fact, he was a very skilled and great politician. He held his throne for over 40 years. And when people think of Herod, they think of building programs. No one was able to build more extensively than Herod. He was actually the one who ordered the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple in which the massive stones, and some of you have been and seen these stones, can still be seen there today. And at the end of his life, he contracted an incurable disease. And when he realized that his death was coming, he had 
one man in each family in the area close by, he had one man in each family also executed on the day he died so that the whole city would be in mourning on the day of his death. That is the man that is seeking to kill Jesus. It was not a silent night. And there was blood on the ground. And this is the world when we think about Jesus shining light into the darkness. And we think about the darkness in our world. The world was just as dark in the world that Jesus was born into. Look at verse 2. And so the Magi, it says, came to Jerusalem asking, Where is this one who is born king of the Jews? Verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was troubled. Some of your versions might say disturbed. And so the natural question is, why is that disturbing? Herod seems to be someone who could take care of this rather quickly. Why is he disturbed and troubled? Well, simply put, Herod's throne is being threatened. And Herod might be wicked, but he's smart. And he knows there can only be one king. And if this child is king, then that means that he is not. And you see, we give a a, a lot of grief to Herod, and we should. He was wicked to be sure, but we need to at least give credit to Herod for one thing. It's that Herod often fails to see, we often fail to see what Herod sees. We often fail to see what Herod sees. What do I mean by that? And and, and here's the truth. The longer that you've been in church and sitting in the pews, the harder it is for you to see. You see, we think we can share the throne with Jesus, don't we? We think we can have Jesus, and yeah, he has a place in our life, but we also have places for all these other things to sit on the throne in our hearts. And you can't have that. And Herod, as wicked as he is, he at least understood that if Jesus is king, then you can't be king. Because there can only be one king. And Herod doesn't want to share the throne. He wants to be king because he loves power and because he wants to be in charge. And look at verse 16. And so he orders when the thing that he loves most dearly, think about what it is that you love dearly, the thing that's close to him, is threatened, he goes ballistic. And he orders that all the boys under the age of two be slaughtered. You see, it's easy for us this morning to sit here and to think, oh, King Herod, how wicked and how horrible of a person he is. And this is not our Christmas story How many Christmas stories does you see and your boy comes home or girl or whatever comes home and says, I'm playing King Herod in the story. No, Herod's not in our Christmas story. We think, you see, when we look at this story, we think, oh, the Magi, that's who we are. We're the shepherds. We're bowing down and worshiping Jesus. Or we're Anna or Simeon. We're the ones worshiping Jesus. And while that might be true some of the time, friends, most of the time, we're more like King Herod than we care to realize, aren't we? 
You see, inside each one of us, there's a little King Herod, isn't there? And listen, I know that's offensive. I know that's not the Christmas story that we like to tell during this time of year. And it's not going to fill the pews. And it's not your best life now. (laughs) Friends, it might not manifest itself in the way we see in this passage. In the form of genocide and killing people. It's way more subtle than that, isn't it? The King Herod inside of us says, I know what Jesus is saying about this in my life, but I'm not ready to give that up. Not now. Jesus, I know he's supposed to be the king of my secrets. I know he's supposed to be the king of my sexuality and my finances and my freedom, but I'm not doing that. It's my life. You ever said this? I'm going to do what I'm going to do. No one's going to tell me what to do. You see how subtle that is? It's way more subtle. It doesn't look angry. It doesn't look hostile. It's internal. But it is a heart that says, I will be my king. When the true king comes to town, you see it in this passage, when the true king comes at Christmas, he reveals what it is we really love. And he threatens it. And when he threatens it, whatever it is, he makes us act in really ugly ways. Again, maybe not to the extent we see here, but he makes us do ugly things. It reminded me last week or last night we had our annual showing in our household of our all-time favorite Christmas movie, Elf. I was reminded of that scene, one of the best scenes in the movie where Buddy the Elf hears that Santa's coming from the North Pole, and only to find that it's a mall Santa. It's an imposter. And he pulls down his beard and says, you're an imposter, and they're chasing each other around. And he says, you, st- you sit on a throne of lies. You see, we all need to hear that. Because we are functioning like imposters on a throne. And it's called the kingdom of self. We think we're king. We think we own our lives. We think we own our money. We think that we're in control. And this passage says that if we submit to any other throne other than Jesus, then we sit on a throne of lies. See, Christmas is a clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the king of kings coming into the world and clashing with every other imposter. Who are you serving this morning? Are you serving the king of kings or are you serving the kingdom of self? Christmas is meant to ask you that question. Secondly, the real Christmas story involves a warning for religious people. Look at verse 3. Herod's troubled, But then it says all of Jerusalem is also troubled. Well, why are they so troubled? Well, it's very simple. Think about Herod and how I described him and who he is. If Herod ain't happy, nobody's happy. You don't want Herod being upset. That's not good for the kingdom. That messes with the status quo. That messes of the comfort among the people. So they're going to side with Herod. Look at verse 4. 
So he assembled all the chief priests, the religious leaders, and he inquired with them about the Christ that was to be born. And so why is he doing this? Well, he wants their input because he knows they know their Bible. They'll know. They'll be able to tell me whether or not the Magi are are, are trying to trick me in some way to get me off the throne. And so he asked them and the religious leaders open up their Bibles because they know their Bibles. They got scripture memory down. And they quote this prophecy from Micah chapter 5. And please don't miss this. Please don't miss this. Very easy to miss. Jerusalem was only six miles from Bethlehem. The chief priest, they know that the law... Think about this. They believed it was true. No one here is doubting whether or not this is true. They believed the long-awaited Messiah was coming to be born only six miles from where they were, and they didn't move. They stayed home. Translation, they knew their Bibles. They gave the right answer in their small group and in their kingdom community, but it did not change their life one single bit. They opened up their Bibles so that they could be that Bible answer man. They didn't open up their Bibles so that their lives could be changed and God could show them how to live and how to change and where they needed to repent. And friends, this is why religion is so attractive Because it maintains the status quo. It's so attractive because you can just show up to church. And you can know all the right answers in your KC. And you can talk about the right authors and carry the right books. And yet be six miles but a million miles away from Jesus. Don't miss what Matthew is doing. Very clear if you look at this passage... The outsiders are in, and the insiders are out. Think about it. Out of all the people who should have gotten Jesus, it's the people in Jerusalem. It's the king, and it's the religious leaders who knew their Bibles. But they miss him. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And he is screaming, if you take chapters 1 and 2 together, he is screaming at us, my own people don't believe. The people to whom the promises were given do not believe the promises enough to walk six miles to receive the promised child. And now it makes sense why John chapter 1 says, when Jesus came, he came into the world and his own people, what? Received him not. But look at the Magi, the people from the east, the outsiders receive the word and they go and they fall down on their face and they worshiped. Friends, this should shock us. It should rattle our cage a little bit. Christmas is meant, one of the things it's supposed to do is to be a, a, a wake-up call, a warning light. It's supposed to be like the check engine light going off in your car. You know, there's two different types of people. It's the person who sees the check engine light, they freak out and panic and go right to get it fixed. But there's also the people, you get in their car, you've done this, and you say, hey, just wanted to let you know their check engine light. Oh, it's been on for 15 years. 
It's been on for, for so long, I've just, I just ignore it. Things are fine. I'm good. Are you ignoring the warning light of Christmas? The warning that it's intended to bring. And friends, it is easy to do. It is so easy to get wrapped up in everything else, in the food and decorations and gifts, and miss the fact that this is intended to be a warning. The Christmas story is supposed to force you to slow down and ask this question. How have you become like the religious leaders in this passage? And you might say, well, okay, how do I know whether, uh, you know, what are some things I need to do? Well, the first thing uh, that you should do is you need to have someone involved in your life. Are you a part of a group? Does someone know you well enough and do you, that you trust enough that can help you see the things that you can't see? Tell you whether you need to heed this warning. Or do you have a group of people or a person that's safe enough for you to be able to share and be honest about what's going on inside of your own heart? And then do you ask yourself hard questions? Hard questions like, do you have enough of the Bible and know enough of the Bible that you have learned not to be affected by the Bible? In other words, do you know the Bible, but you're no longer changed and moved by the Bible? Do you have enough of Jesus that you're no longer moved by Jesus? You're like the religious leaders. Jesus leads you to a boring yawn and you say, I think I'm going to stay home. When's the last time you said, I'm sorry? When's the last time you've asked someone to forgive you? Why do I say that? Because one of the surest signs that you have spiritual life is that you repent and that you say you're sorry and you ask people to forgive you. We think the opposite. We think repentance is a bad thing. Oh, that means I'm doing terrible spiritually. No. Repentance means you're alive spiritually. That your heart is actually soft towards the things of God. Christmas is a warning light for religious people. It's a check. It's a check engine light. Thirdly, the real Christmas story involves real grace for real sinners. Look at verses 1 through 3. The wise men, the magi, the astrologers, they come from the east to Jerusalem and they're asking about this king because God's shown them a star. And look at what happens when they find Jesus. I love the way that's phrased. It's like the they don't even know how to translate this. <laughs> Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, we don't even know how to describe that. It's like they're going completely bonkers <laughs> when they see Jesus. And they fall down on their face and they worship. Why is that such a big deal? Well, here's why. Because the Magi were outsiders. They were outsiders in race, they were Gentiles, and they were outsiders in profession. They were astrologers. And if you look throughout the New Testament, they weren't looked on favorably. God's people despised them. And Matthew puts them here, in God's great kindness and grace, they're invited to Jesus' party. God actually leads them there, to the feet of Jesus 
And by placing the Magi in the Christmas story and by giving us the genealogy of Jesus, which includes Gentile women in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is wanting us to see that God's doing something new in the world. That God comes into the world and in his coming, he's breaking down racial and moral barriers and welcoming the people to whom the world thinks are unworthy. Very clear. These magi are walking pictures of grace. Walking illustrations of God's grace. They would have been the least deserving people to be at Jesus' party. And Matthew highlights this to show us that that's exactly the kind of people that Jesus came into the world for. I love, we sang last week, um, on the manger floor, there's hope for everyone. On the manger floor, there is hope for everyone. To the outsider, like the Magi, comes the Messiah. To people this morning, like me and you, who have Herod inside of our hearts, more than we care to think, comes the Messiah. To people this morning who are no longer moved by Jesus, comes the Messiah. To the drug dealers in the sketchy part of Birmingham, comes the Messiah. To the drug users in over the mountain Birmingham, comes the Messiah to the prostitutes and to the addicts and to the failures and to the burnouts and to every person in between comes the Messiah. To the elderly on their deathbed comes the Messiah. Jesus comes in the world because he is just the Savior that you need. And from the most powerful and the richest to the lowest and the poorest, everyone can reach the feeding trough. Everyone can come to Jesus. And you might be thinking this morning, how in the world is that possible? That news sounds too good to be true. You know how it's possible? It's possible because the real Christmas story on that night, the night was not silent and there was blood on the floor. You see this phrase, the king of the Jews, it shows up one other time in the life of Jesus. And it's at the end of Matthew when Jesus is arrested. He's stripped naked. And they grab a bundle of thorns and they twist it. And they make it into a crown and they shove it down in his skull. And they nail his hands and feet to a cross and they lift him high for the world to see. And hanging over his head on the cross is these words. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And at his feet, there are people mocking him and crying out and making fun of him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. You see, the only one who had the power gave up the power. Why? Because of his deep love for you. Why? Because he was dying for the Herod that lives inside your heart. We just sang, When Love Came Down, When every unclean thought and every sinful deed was hammered through his feet. And then listen to how clear the gospel is here. The innocent is cursed. It's a substitution. 
and the guilty are released. The punishment on, of God on God has brought me peace. There really is hope for everyone. Don't you see? That's why the Magi were going bonkers. That's why the Magi fell down and rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because there was hope for even them. And there's hope for you this morning. And so wherever you are this morning and whatever you've done, Christmas is an invitation. It is an invitation for you to come to Jesus' party. And so here's the invitation. I'm going to invite you. Will you come to Jesus' party? Will you come and sit with other sinners and rejoice exceedingly with great joy because Jesus has invited you and has died for whatever it is that you've done so that he could be with you forever? That's the story of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you that on the manger floor, There really is hope for everyone. Forgive us this morning for keeping you out. Forgive us for the little King Herod that lives inside of us that wants to go on our own way and wants to kick you off the throne. Would you, through your spirit, move us this Christmas, move us today to exceeding joy like the Magi so we would rejoice this Christmas for what you have done for us. We ask you to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.